0: Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church. Our mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Join us today as Pastor John Glenn teaches on biblical self-awareness. You will learn what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves and what it means to be fully adopted into the family of God. We hope you are encouraged and built up in the faith. If you have any questions or comments, be sure to email us and look for some information about us in the show notes. Here's John.
1: We enter into Romans chapter 7 with another question. Don't you know? Another, know you not, brethren. Back in chapter 6 of Romans, the Apostle Paul was concerned to show show us that we were delivered from sin, the habit and power of sin, that God has separated us from our flesh by making us a brand new person in Christ. Now he's concerned in this next chapter to show us how we are being delivered from the law as well as from sin. Let's read the verses together just to get the context. He says in verse 1 of chapter 7, Know you not, brethren. Now notice here that he's speaking to brethren. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to those who have been born again, to those who have experienced the new birth and now have a new life in them, to those who are new creatures in Christ. Know you not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman, and here he gives us an example to follow, the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Now it's very important that you and I grasp what Paul is telling us here as believers concerning our relationship now with the law. It's extremely important that we understand not only have we been delivered or set free from sin, but we have also been set free from the law. But in order to really appreciate that, we're going to have to understand what the law is. And so let's take a moment or two and try to come to a better awareness of what he means when he addresses us as brethren and he says that I speak to them that know the law. When he says, I speak to them that know the law, he is talking about those who actually have been raised up and conditioned under the law. The first experience of our being under the law or knowing the law comes from the first law system that each one of us was exposed to right at birth. And that law system came from our parents. It is therefore a parental law that we have been raised up under. You remember how it was, your parents or your guardians, whoever raised you up, told you what to do and when to do it and where to do it and how long to do it. They told you how to dress and how to act and how to talk and everything in your life, virtually everything, was dictated to you by their rules and regulations. Now, it's of necessity that we raise children under the law, for the scripture tells us that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. In other words, that's kind of a biblical way of saying all kids are so crazy they'll kill themselves before they get old enough to be an adult unless we tell them what to do and when to do it and how to do it and so on. And so, Under this natural law system of the parent, there's a certain protection there. But we learn that we, as persons, need to listen to what other people tell us to do and respond to it in a certain way in order to get along in life. Now, we learn something else also about that. Especially when we're working with our parents, we learn that when we, as individuals, counteract that law system, we learn how to lie and get away with it. We learn how to weasel around their demands and get away with it. We learn how to avoid their commands. We learn how to reinterpret their commands to apply to our own desires. We learn all sorts of things under that initial law system. But we, above all things, learned that life is to be controlled by a set of rules and regulations. And then as we grow up, we go to school. When we go to school, we get introduced to the social law. We learn from our teachers how to behave socially. It is the primary function of all kindergarten teachers or preschool teachers to try to socialize these little children to make them acceptable so that they can stay in the school and learn whatever they're there to learn. Now, the socialization process, of course, is not restricted to the school. We also learn the socialization process through uh, our interaction with our extended family and others. But at this point, we begin to discover there are more rules than just what our parents have given us so far to live by. That there are a whole set of rules that other folks are living by that also impinge upon our life. But then we also notice something else about this time. And that is, there's another law system that we begin to pay attention to, and that's the law of our peers, our friends, become a very important law system in our minds. As a matter of fact, even though the law system of our peer group, especially in adolescence and younger, may be radically different from the law group of our parents or from our our social law uh, standards, they are nonetheless legal in character. In working in counseling and group process with different individuals, on occasion I've had a chance to work with gang members. Gang members will invariably tell me about their initiation rights. Invariably they'll tell me about the rules and regulations that they had to uh, meet up to to get into and be, belong to a particular gang. And while the rules and regulations are radically different, than the normal socialization process that most of us go through, and while it's radically different, probably, than even their own parents' standards, they were giving heed to and living their life by that set of rules and regulations of that gang in order to receive the approval and acceptance of that gang. Uh, A recent example of that, I was talking with a fellow the other day who said it was his job, in order to get into this gang, to walk around with a gun, a loaded gun, concealed weapon, and he had to walk up to a policeman and carry on a conversation with that policeman without the policeman knowing that he had a concealed weapon and walk away from that policeman. In other words, he had to, in essence, flaunt his uh, concealed weapon before the policeman without getting busted in order to become a member of that gang. There are other initiation rights that are much more serious than that, but the thing I want you to see is that falls under the category of a law, a law system, the law of the peer group. But that's not the only way we learn about law. We learn about law in addition, sometimes, from the civil authorities themselves, and we get introduced very quickly to civil law. The civil law refers to the rules and regulations that our communities are governed by, and this ranges from the city ordinances and statutes that we live in, to the, the state statutes and criminal justice code, to federal law, even in some respects to international law. All of this is man's government of the society in which we live. And we get introduced to this, as I was very early on in life, uh, I, I particularly remember the time I got my driver's license. Now, you may have not had this problem, but I remember when I got my driver's license at 16 years old, I discovered the hard way that these folks were serious about these traffic laws. In fact, it was less than a month, I almost lost my driver's license because they're so serious about these traffic laws. So I was introduced to civil law in a very special way early on in my life. And I, I became aware of the fact that our society as a whole has certain rules and regulations that is, has been laid down. And they enforce them, of course, with the police system. Now, in addition to this, we also get introduced to another type of law, which is a religious law. This religious law is the law that you get when you go to church. Whenever you go to church, depending on what type of church you go to or what type of religious group you go to, you're going to be introduced to religious law. You're going to discover that various churches have different types of law. Now, the problem with most religious law is it's not clearly understood and not clearly written out. It's kind of a law system that you have to infer. It's, it's, it's something that you kind of have to experience. You have to kind of go and be with the group and then you'll begin to see that all the people seem to be doing one thing, then that's what you need to be doing. Or if none of the people seem to be doing this, then you shouldn't do it either. There is an an unwritten law, usually, in most groups, as well as a written denominational code, that we must obey if we're going to be part of that group. I was raised up in a conservative Baptist tradition, so if in our services, in our church, if anybody ever raised their hands in praise and worship they would most likely be excused to go to the bathroom. However, I've also worked with Pentecostal groups, and I've been part of the Charismatic uh, Pentecostal service, and if you didn't raise your hand in praise and worship, someone would come by and give you CPR because they figured that you probably died in the service. Different religious systems have different law structures, and these are primarily the traditions of men, primarily the tradition and culture of, of the society in which the religious group is formed, but nonetheless, they're imposed and become part of our legal training. Now, finally, there's another system that we've, we've got to reckon with, and that is God's law. God's law may be different from religious law. There may be some overlap, but God's law may be different from religious law, but it is nonetheless legal in character, and it is law. Whenever we think of God's law, usually we think of the Old Testament. We think of the Ten Commandments that was given by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. Usually we we are concerned with understanding those Ten Commandments and how they impact our life in one way or another, and whether or not we're keeping those Ten Commandments, and we focus primarily on God's law out of the Old Testament. This is why many of us are real happy and glad to know that we are not living under the Old Covenant any longer, but we are now under the New Covenant, and so we say, well, we're going to go from the Old Testament now into the New. Let me clarify something on that. There's actually more law in the New Testament than there is in the Old. There are over 1,000 commands, most of them supernatural in character in the New Testament alone. Back in the Old Testament, we only have the ten Commandments, but in the New Testament, there's over 1,000 commands. All of the commands of the scriptures, both in the Old and New Testament, all of the commands of God constitute God's law. Now, when you add all of this up, beginning with parental law and ending with God's law, you'll see that we are very familiar with the law. And so when Paul says in Romans chapter 7, when he, he writes, Know you not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, he's talking about us. We know our parental law. We know the social law of our society and our culture. We know the peer group law. We know the civil law. We know the religious law. And we know that there are certain spelling laws that we have to follow as well. And some of those spelling laws involve what they've been telling me about here, about this misspelling of this word religion. Now, for our video audience, I want you to understand that we're real here. And when we misspell a word on the board, that means that we are real so that... I know how to to spell it. Religion. All right, I'm just going to leave it there. You guys you guys deal with that now. I'm not going to live under a law system. I'm going to live under grace and not law. In all seriousness, now, the law of religion is a reflection of God's law. The law of our civil society is a reflection of God's law. The law of our peer group is a reflection of God's law. The law of of our parents is actually a reflection of God's law. Did you know that all of other law systems come from basically the Ten Commandments? But it's all law, and it all applies to us. When he says, I speak to them that know the law, he's talking about us who are raised up to know the law. Now, the most important personal application about this whole thing is this, that when we seek to live our life by a set of rules and regulations. When we seek to live our life by law, we quit living our life supernaturally in the power of the Spirit and start living our life in the energy of our own flesh. And in this way, we become dysfunctional. We become dysfunctional when we live under a system of rules and regulations. And this is what he's concerned with that we understand now. I know this goes contrary to our normal way of thinking. And I want you to let this soak in right now, what we're talking about in terms of being delivered from the law. Because our normal way of thinking, precisely because we've been raised up under all this law, is that if we keep these rules and regulations, if we keep all the demands and expectations Of all these law systems, then we're going to be able to live a much fuller, a much richer life. But if, on the other hand, we violate these, if we can't live up to them, then we're going to die. The reality is that if we try to live under the law system, we ignore God's grace. And by ignoring God's grace and being under the law system, we die. So Paul goes on now in chapter 7 to give us an analogy that illustrates the dominion and the bondage of the law system that we live under when he says that a man has uh, dominion, rather, has, I'm sorry, the law has dominion over the man as long as he lives. And he gives us this analogy. He says, the woman, which hath a husband, it's an analogy for marriage, is bound by the law, that is particularly the law of marriage, She is bound by the law to that husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. Here he's just simply illustrating the fact that the husband and the wife are bound together by the law of marriage. And what it takes to get out from under that law system is death. This is why he goes on to say, if her husband be dead... Now, no, particularly, he doesn't say exactly how the husband died here. But he says, if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law, emphasizing the fact that it is death that sets us free from the law system. So then, he goes on in verse 3 to say, if while her husband lives she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. Why? Because she's breaking the law. You see, when you break the law... This woman is going to be committing adultery by marrying another man, and in violation of that law, she is going to be identified as a lawbreaker or an adulteress. But, he goes on to say, if her husband is dead, if her husband dies, she can go marry another man without violating the law. Now, the critical thing for us to understand about this analogy and by the way, let me, just, let me toss this in here because it's real important. I've heard too many Christians take this out of context and try to apply this as a rule or regulation concerning divorce and remarriage. And I want to caution you against that right now. I want you to understand that he is not giving us a discourse on divorce and remarriage. He is not giving us a discourse that if you divorce, you can never get married again unless your spouse dies. That's not what he's saying. He's just simply using an analogy of a law system that all of us would be familiar with, and that's the law of marriage, to tell us that what causes us to be free from that law is death. Now, this brings to our mind what he's also shared with us back in chapter 6. Remember, back in chapter 6, he said, When you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, when you are born again, the old person you were was crucified and died and was buried with Christ and a brand new person was raised up. So your relationship to the law is something like this. Let's suppose, just, just as a, an example, that I decided that I wanted a new car and so I went into town and I just happened to rip off a nice looking new car and I drove it out of town and the police are chasing me now because I've stolen a car. And I'm driving 90 miles an hour down the road and I lose control and the car turns in and veers into a telephone pole and smashes up against the telephone pole and it kills me. I'm dead. Wouldn't it be silly for the policemen who have been chasing me to come up rushing around that car, get out, go open the door, drag my lifeless body out and say, you have the right to remain silent. Wouldn't it be silly for them further to cuff me, to throw me and my body in the back of their squad car and take me downtown and book me and fingerprint me? Why would that be silly? Because you see, I'm dead. Dead men aren't under the law. The law has no jurisdiction over a dead man. Death frees us from the law. This is the only point that Paul is making in this analogy to begin with. He says the woman who has a husband, is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if there's death that enters in and separates them, then she is free from the law. Now let's look at the application to us. In verse 4, he says, Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. See, now he's telling us directly what I just alluded to a moment ago back in chapter 6. You have become dead to the To the law by the body of Christ for this reason that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. You see, under this law system that we have all been raised up in, there is nothing but death. This law system produces death because all of these expectations, whether we understand it or not, have consequences that we experience if we do not meet up to them in, in death in one form or another. All of this produces death. Well, what he's telling us here is that we, ne- in order to live, then we must get out of this law system into another system we've been studying about, and that's the system of grace. God's undeserved love and favor and kindness towards us. What it takes to get out of this system of law into the system of grace is what we've been identifying as the death of Christ on the cross. And as we go through this death, we become free to be married to another. That other that he describes here in verse 4 is none other than Jesus, who was raised up from the dead, and the concept of being married to him involves our union with Christ, so that we then, here we are, originally, I'm going to put you right here, you were married to the law originally. Originally, everything you did was by law. You met up to your parents' expectations, the peers' expectations, your society's expectations, religious expectations, and tried your best to live up to God's law. It didn't do anything, really, but produce death in you. God knew that, and so by his own provision, by joining you inseparably to Christ in his death on the cross, and his burial, you died to the law. This relationship was once and for all destroyed. You died to the law so that you could be married to another, even him whom God has raised up from the dead, Christ, so that you could become inseparably joined to him. Now again, the term married here is very important. The concept of oneness with Christ comes into play when we when we realize we are married to another even to him whom God has raised up from the dead that means we are joined to Christ now having been joined to Christ we have no more relationship to the law this is so hard for us to realize because you see everything in our subconscious mind or what the bible calls the heart has been programmed everything has been programmed to live according to the law, according to rules and regulations. If you want to get a little bit of an understanding of what the law is like and what it does to you, and if you want particularly to understand your own flavor of your own law system, I want you to remember this word. Just whenever whenever you want to know what your law system is that you're carrying around on yourself, or the law system that other people are putting on you, or that you're putting on others, just remember this word, expectations. Expectations. What do you expect out of yourself? What do you expect out of others? How should they behave? How should they talk? How should they act towards you? How should they respond to you? This is your own law system that you're living your life by. Now. I frequently encounter people who have great expectations for themselves and greater expectations for others. As a matter of fact, I like to visualize it in terms of a little bag that we carry around. Over here, you know, one of these little satchels you put over your head and it's hanging down here. And there's a little bag, it's about this big, and it's got all your expectations for yourself in it. And anytime as you enter into life... Anytime you encounter a situation and you need some answer to fix that situation, you reach into your bag of expectations for yourself and you apply it to yourself. That is, you apply the law to yourself. And you do it mainly by saying, I should do this. If I would do this, I I could do this, I should do this. There's a lot of shoulding that goes on here on yourself when you reach into that bag of expectations, you pull out an expectation that says, this is what I ought to be doing. I need to be doing this thing. But you see, there's another bag of expectations we carry around to face life with. It's not just the bag of expectations we have on ourselves, but there's also a bag of expectations we have for others. Now this is not a small bag, this is a large bag. This bag drags the ground behind us. It is filled with so many expectations. And when we walk around through life and we see various situations and we we say to ourselves, this is what ought to be done in this situation. I'll tell you what they ought to do to these kinds of folks. I know what should happen here. We're reaching into our bag of expectations and pulling them out and trying to place our expectations on the situation around us. That's how we function and live in law. What that produces in us invariably is death. Death in our relationship to others, death in our own personal experience. Now, Paul's trying to get us out of that kind of lifestyle. He's trying to get us out from under all these expectations that we have for others and on ourselves to live in a new lifestyle that he says, first of all, is characterized by our union with Christ. In other words, he is trying to get us into a new lifestyle that is not based on us living our life by a set of rules and regulations on what we ought to do or what we should do, but rather he is trying to get us into a new lifestyle that is based only on our relationship to Christ. And it's to that now that we want to turn our attention. We want to understand what he means by that you should be married to another, even to him whom God has raised up from the dead. Jesus, you recall, is, is spoken of by John, the evangelist, as being full of grace and truth. And what Paul means when he says that we are to be married to him is that we're going to be living our life according to the grace of Jesus Christ and the truth of Jesus Christ. And let's try to understand what this means. First of all, he gives us the result of this. In the last part of chapter, uh, verse 4 of chapter 7, he says, this is the reason why we're to be married to Christ, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, this is a real important concept, and I want you to try to focus your attention on this with me as much as you can right now, because the only way that we'll ever bring forth fruit unto God, the only way that we'll ever bear fruit, that we'll ever functionally bring fruit unto God is by our union with Christ. It's the only possible way to do it. We can run around expecting people to behave and expecting ourselves to behave all day and never bear fruit to God. The only possible way that we can ever bear fruit that is acceptable to God is by our union with Christ. Now, read on with me in verse 5, and he explains a little, little deeper. He says, For when you were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. What he means by this is when all you were was your flesh, that is, all you were was that old person, the motions of sins or the motive, the internal drive of sin, which was by the law, meaning the law actually works on your flesh to produce sin in you, could only bring forth fruit unto death. It could only bring forth dysfunction. I want you to, to follow along with me on this very carefully because this is where dysfunction in our life comes from. It's, it's called here by the scriptures death. But really where it comes from is the law being applied to our flesh. If you want to make a whole dysfunctional group of folks, just take the law, any expectation, and apply it to their flesh. Tell them to live up to this law and hammer at home how often they violate that law, and you're going to make those folks dysfunctional. You're going to make those folks crazy. I can't un- overemphasize this too much because I'll tell you that I have a personal burden here, a very serious burden, not only for families but also for churches that too many times we have tried to deal with dysfunction by adding another law. And all we're doing is making the problem worse. All we're doing is adding fuel to the fire. We are not solving any problem. We're just adding to the problem. When we add more expectations, heap more law on any situation, we're always going to make that situation worse. Let me give you some, some examples of this. Case in point. A husband is dissatisfied with his wife and how she treats him and how she treats the kids or what she does at home. And so to answer this situation, to remedy this problem, the husband reaches into his law bag of expectations for his wife, and he says, wife, you ought to be doing these things. You need to start, be, start doing those things. And with regards to the kids, you ought to start being more loving. You ought to pay more attention to them. You ought to keep them quiet when I'm trying to do something. And you ought to do this, that, and the other. The husband, you see, is trying to fix a situation by applying his standard of law to his wife. Invariably, what he's going to reap from that is rebellion in that woman. He is going to get that woman to rebel against him because, you see, you can't change another person by the application of the law. The law has never been intended by God to change anyone, and it can't be used by us to change anyone. What you might affect when you apply the law strong enough, you might get a little external compliance on the outside. On the outside, they may comply with you depending on the the extent of the threat that you give them if, if they violate your law system, but you'll never permanently and effectively change another person by the application of law. And yet husbands continue to do that. And then, not only do they apply... Parental law, let's say, for instance, my mama always did it this way. Not only do they apply social law, everybody does it this way. All wives are supposed to behave this way, but they also apply peer law. Your friends behave this way. Why can't you be like them? And then they get on into civil law saying, I'm going to divorce you if you don't behave this way. And then finally into religious law. Boy, they get heavy on the religious law. You all know the scriptures, don't you? You know what it says in Ephesians chapter 5, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Boy, I've heard that one used many, many times in counseling situations. Wives are supposed to be submissive to us husbands. They are all, all of these are examples of law that is being used to try to affect a change in another person, and all it does is produce rebellion. This is what he means here in verse 5, and he says, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law. Another way of saying this, we'll look at later in this chapter, or uh, elsewhere in the scriptures, is that the strength of sin, 1 Corinthians 15, the strength of sin is the law. Another way of saying that to (coughs) to apply to what we're talking about here is the strength of dysfunction. The strength of problems is the law. That's their strength. And then he, he finally tells us that where the law is added, where the law is applied, Romans 5, sin abounds. So if you want to cause more dysfunction, if you want to cause a greater problem, if you want to cause more sin to abound, all you need to do is reach into your bag of expectations and pull out law and put on the problem or the situation and it will cause sin to abound now instead of doing that what he goes on to say in verse six is but now we are delivered from the law we're going to wipe out these expectations we're going to get rid of this law system we are delivered entirely from this law there is no more law for us to deal with you just wipe it out in your own minds while i'm wiping it off the board here We are delivered from all these expectations. We are delivered from the law completely, once and for all, separated totally from that law, delivered from the law. Why? That being dead wherein we were held. Remember this death that was here? The law can only produce death. God doesn't want us to die. He wants us to live functionally and healthy and in a powerful way. So he delivers us from that which produces death. We are delivered from the law by the cross of Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, he tells us that he took the handwriting of the ordinances which were contrary against us. That's the law. And he nailed it to his cross. Jesus, you see, when he hung on the cross of Calvary, took all of our punishment that was due us for violating the law of God, upon himself. He took the handwriting of ordinances that were contrary against us and nailed it to his cross to set us free from this law. Why? So that we could be married to another. Read on with me in verse 6. That we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. In newness of spirit means that we're going to serve God we're going to serve one another, relating both to God and to each other in a brand new way. A way that is not characterized by the old natural law system that has now been wiped out. A way that is not, no longer characterized by a set of expectations we have on ourselves and on others and how we and others ought to behave. But a brand new way that is characterized by the leadership, power, and understanding and comfort of the Spirit of God. That we should serve in the newness of the Spirit is what we're going to be expounding on in later studies. But for right now, it's important that you understand that because we are joined to Christ, we have His Spirit living in us. Now, let's just go ahead and interject something at this point that's real important about this. Because we have the Spirit of God living in us, He tells us what to do, when to do, where to do it, with whom to do it. The Spirit of God. God himself is speaking directly to us. What this means is it's in fulfillment of the new covenant of grace when he said, I will write my law on your hearts. The way he does that is through the personal leadership of the Holy Spirit. He actually writes His law on our hearts and tells us minute by minute, step by step, what He wants us to do, when He wants us to do it, where He wants us to do it, with whom He wants us to do it, so that we can live in a functional way. He wants us to serve in newness of spirit. Now, let me show you the contrast again to really bring it home to you in your minds. If we're living under the law, if we're operating under the law, We cannot be married to Christ. Going back to our original analogy, it's impossible for us to listen to what Jesus has to say through his Spirit to us about what we ought to be doing if all the time we're thinking of our legalistic expectations on how we or others ought to behave. If our legalistic expectations of our own law system is what's so important to us, if we trust that more than we do God speaking to us through the Spirit then we're going to be dysfunctional. It is not going to work, no matter what we try to do, no matter what we, how we try to interact with others, no matter how we try to relate to others, it's not going to be healthy, it's going to be dysfunctional. Because the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So why are we set free from the law? We are set free from the law to serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Set free from the law so that we can live. Set free from the law so we can actually function in a healthy way. We are set free from the law to accomplish all that God wants us to accomplish in our lives. Now at this point, the reader of this chapter, and we also as we study this, may begin to get in our minds the idea that since God has set us free from the law, he has, in essence, wiped out the law. Since God has eliminated the law from our life, that we might get the idea that the law was a bad thing, that it wasn't any good to begin with, that it's something that is to be thought of as even bad now. To avoid this, Paul goes on in these next few verses to describe the purpose of the law. Why did God give the law in the first place? If we're not to live under the law now, we're not to live under the law but live in grace by the power of the Spirit, why did God give the law in the first place? Read on with me in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? That is, is the law itself bad? Is the law itself wrong? Are expectations of ourselves and others by themselves bad? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. May it never be. No, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. And here he introduces us to the first purpose of the law, and that is to point out what sin is. This is really what the law of God was designed to do in the first place. It was designed to point out to us what is sin so that we would understand what it is that kills us. So the law itself is not sin. The law itself is not bad. It's not wrong. It's our efforts to try to live up to that law without Christ that's bad because that's not possible. It's not the law itself. Now, it's important that we... Understand when Paul says, is the law sin here, he is anticipating a question that will naturally arise in our minds. If we are not in any way, in any wise under the law, then we might get the idea that any application of the law is wrong. And so let me counter that idea in your minds right now with the real reason the law was given by God. It was given by God to maintain the integrity of the group. You see, any time you get a group together, you have to have rules, don't you? Otherwise, the group would become chaotic and dissipate. You couldn't keep a group together. You cannot sustain a group of people, any, any kind of a group, without law. There has to be rules and regulations. No matter how informal that group is, there has to be some sort of rules and regulations concerning that group, when it meets, for instance, what it does, when it meets, and so on. So the law was always intended by God to maintain the integrity of the group. This is how the law served a useful purpose in protecting Israel, God's people, in the wilderness. When he gave them the Ten Commandments, he gave them a law system for the sake of protecting the group. The law always protects the group, but grace is what's necessary for the individual. You see, the law will will say that each individual in the group must live up to certain standards or they can't be part of this group and we have to get rid of them. Grace, however, is for the individual. Grace is what God provides for the individual who can't live up to the standards for the group. Now, When we say we're not under law but under grace, we are not saying that we should do away with all law. Can you imagine trying to drive through some of our city streets without traffic laws, without stoplights, at rush hour? Can you imagine what kind of chaos it would be? You would be taking your own life in your hands, just trying to get home, wouldn't you? You see, we've got to have law. To maintain the integrity of the Society, to maintain the integrity of the group, to maintain the integrity of a program. We've got to have law. However, that law can do nothing but maintain the integrity of the group. If we're going to change the individual within the group, if we're going to sustain the individual within the group, if we're going to cause the individual within the group to grow and mature, we cannot use law. We must use grace. So he goes on to further explain some benefits here of the law. It shows us what is wrong. It shows us what is sin. He says, I would not have known lust except the law said thou shalt not covet. Now you all realize what thou shalt not covet means, don't you? It means thou shalt be happy with what thou hast and not complain about it. That's what it means to not covet. He says, I wouldn't know this inward desire I have of covetousness, of, of lusting for, strongly desiring other things than what I've got, had the law not said, thou shalt not covet. Now, he picks this particular uh, commandment, it's the last of the Ten Commandments, and he picks this one because you can run around coveting and nobody would know it. Did you know that? You can covet, covetousness happens on the inside. It's not something that you can outwardly see. On the outside, you don't, you don't look like you're coveting, but on the inside, you are. Well, he says, I can deny myself about that as well. And so I would not know that coveting is wrong, except the law said thou shalt not covet. But where's the real problem? Verse 8, but sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence or licentiousness or covetousness. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Here he introduces us to another part of of the law. The law proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are exceedingly sinful. The law proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that we've got a problem, that we are dysfunctional. Anybody that's going to experience any type of recovery or growth in their life is going to have to first of all realize that they need it. They're going to have to break through their denial systems and come to grips with the fact that they have a problem that they need to deal with in one way or another. Unless we break through that denial, there's no way that we can possibly begin to grow through our problems. And so the law serves a useful purpose in breaking our own denial about the problems we have. This is what he's talking here about in verses 8 and 9. Now in verse 10, he says, and the commandment which was ordained to life. What he means by that is that the law system that God has given us is the best possible life we can ever know all the laws and commands of the scriptures. If we could actually live them, it would be the best possible life for any of us. But the law that was ordained to life, he says, I found to be unto death. And all of us have experienced this. There's nothing wrong with the law itself. The problem is we can't keep the law, and therefore we experience death because of it. He says, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, that's the denial process, and by it slew me, or killed me, was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. It wasn't the law itself, all by itself, that killed me. But what killed me was sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good that sin, by the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. Now, I'm going to take just a moment here in closing to give you the real overview of the meaning of these last few verses in a practical example. It is not the law, it is not doing what's right, what God says we ought to do, and not doing what, uh, refusing to do what's wrong, what he says we ought not to do, that is the, that is the problem. The problem is this sin that he's talking about. This sin we've already defined in previous lessons as unbelief and pride. This sin comes in our mind between our own ears first when we say that I can save myself by what I do or don't do. You see, the law demanding righteousness is not the problem. The problem is the prideful idea that we get in our minds that we can actually somehow live up to that law. Because at that point, we become our own savior. At that point, we become the the master of our own destiny, as it were. At that point, everything is on us to actually save ourselves. Where's God in that picture? He's not in that picture at all. Where's Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross in that picture? He's not in that picture at all. You see, we have decided we're going to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and make ourselves okay. This is the sin that he's talking about that actually destroys us. What the law does by demanding higher and higher standards, supernatural standards, as a matter of fact, what it does is prove to us once and for all that we cannot save ourselves. It proves to us once and for all that we need a Savior. As Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, the law is our schoolmaster, our teacher, To bring us unto Christ. Because you see what it does is it actually closes us up to our own resources and says they're not enough. You've got to have something more than what you can muster in yourself. And this points us to cry out for a savior. So the law is not wrong in and of itself. The law in and of itself is not evil or bad or corrupt. The problem is that sin nature that lies within all of us, that is born within us, that desires to make us okay apart from God, that desires to run our life without Him. The problem is not the law. The problem is sin that takes occasion by the commandment to prove that we are exceedingly sinful and in need of a Savior. There is a deadly interplay here between the law nature of the flesh, and the corruption that bursts forth in our life, we call it dysfunction. Now, we leave off in verse 14 with a pitiful cry. After looking at this law, look how Paul describes it. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, okay, we've recognized that the law is good, but I am carnal, sold under sin. What kind of self-image has Paul got here? It's a pretty poor self-image, isn't it? He's looking at himself as being a failure now. Why? Because he's been looking at the righteousness of the law. He's been looking at the goodness of the law, and now he's looking at himself as being a failure, unable to meet up to that law system. The good news of the gospel is that Paul, even though he sees himself now as a miserable failure, not able to keep the law, The good news of the gospel is that he is not under the law, but under grace. May the Lord give us the grace that we need to realize we are delivered from the law, that we might be joined to Christ to live eternally in his spirit. Thank you.
0: Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website, All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes.